there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. As regular junkies know, we recently dropped a week's worth of episodes showcasing five badass 20-something women in all different professions from various backgrounds in the hopes of making a very heavy-handed point. You don't have to be in your 40s or 50s or older to have wisdom and lessons learned and expertise to share. Well, my next guest is a journalist who has a fantastic documentary out in theaters now called RBG about Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is 85 years old and talk about badass. So I hope you've got a mug of your favorite caffeinated beverage nearby because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my next guest is someone I've known since I was a young Java junkie when I was in college. Betsy West is a video journalist and filmmaker with three decades of experience in news and documentaries. Most recently, she directed RBG along with her co-director, Julie Cohen. And we know one another because Betsy used to work as a producer and an executive at ABC News, and she worked with my dad. While at ABC, Betsy earned 21 Emmy Awards and two DuPont Columbia Awards for her work on Nightline and Primetime Live, and the documentary program Turning Point. Betsy is also a professor at the prestigious Columbia School of Journalism with a focus on media and society. Betsy, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am totally caffeinated and completely pumped to talk to you, Andrea. It really is uh, great to reconnect. Uh, You're right. We did meet some decades ago when you were a college student and I was a young producer at uh, Nightline and we were on a trip to China. Uh, Your father had brought you along, uh, not just as a perk, but because uh, you were studying Chinese and you were (laughs) an interpreter. It was quite quite an adventure uh, in uh, still very communist China. Yes, it was. That was 1984. Four. Oh my gosh. Talk about a long time ago. Yes. Well, Betsy, before we get into your professional career and how you have accomplished all that you have, I want to talk about your new documentary, RBG. My husband and I just watched it the other night and holy cow, it is amazing. Amazing. Huge congratulations to you and to Julie Cohen for directing such an incredible film. And I have to say, I'm going to pass this, I'm going to pass the baton to you. But I want to say that, honestly, I did not know really anything about Justice Ginsburg. I didn't know the fact that she's the legal architect of the women's movement, and that she systematically brought lawsuits to the US Supreme Court to secure greater equality for women in this country. It was so eye-opening, in addition to being so entertaining and just a beautiful film. Would you mind giving Java Junkies a quick overview of RBG and why you think 
with so many movies and Netflix series and YouTube videos that are out there, Java Junkies should give a documentary about one of the nine Supreme Court justices who just so happens to be an 85-year-old grandmother, two hours of their time. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, she is an unlikely hero, but uh, boy, she certainly is an inspiration. And, you know, Julie and I came up with doing the idea, uh, doing a documentary about uh, Justice Ginsburg uh, a few years ago, because she was starting to get more attention for the rather blistering dissents she was writing on the Supreme Court as the court was moving more to the right. People started calling her notorious RBG, and she was kind of lighting up social media with all kinds of kinds of funny memes. And Saturday Night Live, uh, as Kate McKinnon did an impersonation of her uh, as this uh, really tough uh, elderly woman speaking truth to power and doing her funny dance and and. Julie and I one day uh, looked at each other and said, there is so much more to this woman's story. We both had interviewed her for previous projects. We realized uh, what, uh, what an incredibly inspiring and funny and romantic story it was. And we said someone ought to do a documentary and it should be us. So that's kind of why we did it. And I'm really glad that that you responded to it in the way you did, that uh, it was a revelation because that's what we thought it would be for people. And why do you think teenagers and people in their 20s, I'm not even saying the young women out there, but the yeah. young women and the young men should watch a documentary rather than the latest Netflix series on, you know, unsolved murders, unsolved mysteries. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, that uh, many people and young people respond to Justice Ginsburg's whole persona. I mean, we'll go to screenings and there will be eight, nine, 10 year olds who've come to the screening just dressed up as Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg with a little black robe and like a lace collar and glasses and their hair pulled back. There's something very cool about a tiny uh, cancer surviving grandmother who is speaking truth to power. Uh, so I think that in, in general, she just does inspire a certain amount of admiration. Julie and I tried very hard to uh, tell her story in an engaging and entertaining way. And, I, and I, I hope that and I think maybe that's why people have responded to the movie. It is uh, we do. There is history in the movie. You do learn about Justice Ginsburg, but but you can also have a lot of fun watching her uh, do her planks and her push-ups in the gym. <laughs> I actually wonder if this isn't going to inspire a whole new generation of young attorneys as a result of this. Well, absolutely. I've had many young women say, you know, I think I am going to go to law school. I was thinking about it, but now someone, a, a woman came up to us and said that she was uh, considering whether or not running for a a judicial position, and she's decided to do it. So I, I think that, uh, yes, uh, there there is uh, certainly that aspect to the audience of people who think that working in our legal institutions is a, is a good thing to do with your life. 
I would like to ask you about the hat that you were wearing as this RBG was taking shape, which was director. Mm -hmm. What does that mean that you did? What were your various responsibilities as one of the film's directors? Yeah, um, Julie and I did this as a partnership. We'd never worked this closely together before. We met each other about uh, nine years ago when I hired her as a freelance producer to work on a project called Makers, Women Who Make America, which uh, was an interview series and a documentary about the modern women's movement, which is when I first interviewed Justice Ginsburg. So Julie and I knew each other, but then we came up with the idea of doing this documentary. And at the very beginning, it was just us, me and Julie and the idea. The first thing we had to do was, you know, convince Justice Ginsburg to allow us to make a movie like this. And that took a little bit of doing. And then we together started to assemble a team. And, you know, a documentary is a fairly uh, compact uh, organism. Uh, it's often the director, in our case, directors. And uh, we also functioned as producers. That meant we were doing just about everything in terms of making the editorial and the production decisions about how this film would come together. Who are we going to hire as the, uh, as the camera people? Who, we, who are we going to hire as the editor? Um, who were we going to interview? So all of those decisions really are, are made by the director. One of the things we decided early on was that Justice Ginsburg um, does have an extraordinary uh, record as a litigator on behalf of uh, women's rights. And it's very important to her. And we thought, you know, I bet we bet she'd like to be filmed uh, by a female camera woman. So we hired the wonderful Claudia Rashke, who's just incredible. And that worked out really well. And then we thought, well, gee, why don't we try to find a woman as our editor? So Carla Gutierrez came on board. She is brilliant. Uh, we had an associate producer as a woman. I mean, pretty much everybody, our composer. Uh, we did work with a few men but um, here and there, but it was largely a, a female effort. And, and that was, uh, I think, a really great decision that we made. So just to answer your questions, the, the directors are kind of the people in charge of the vision of the film. And, and the producers... That's also us in this case, uh, charged with making it actually happen. And I also want to mention another woman who was involved was Jennifer Hudson. Yes. Uh, at, at, toward the end of the uh, project, we showed the film to Diane Warren, who is an uh, Oscar-nominated songwriter. And uh, she loved the film, and she said she wanted to write a song for the closing credits, which we thought would be fantastic. So she wrote, I'll fight. And then uh, she showed it to Jennifer Hudson and she agreed to sing it. So that's on the closing credits of the film. So I have to ask you, what was it like for you personally as a woman working on this project? And how long did it take you to actually produce it? You said you started thinking about it and talking about it with Julie a few years ago. So yeah. how long from start to finish? Yeah, so I guess it was January 2015, so that's three and a half years ago. Uh, it took about 
let's say, four or five months, a couple of emails back and forth with uh, Justice Ginsburg to gain a, her kind of limited participation in the film. Uh, she agreed to um, an interview sometime in the future and also to allow us to film some of the um, events that she does around the country. Then we started also interviewing her former colleagues and her friends and other people who played a role in her life. Uh, so that all, all of that filming began in 2016 and went on for about a year and a half. So the actual production uh, was, was a year and a half. We finished last fall. And the other thing I should mention, another important step was, you know, once Justice Ginsburg had agreed uh, that we could begin this project, we had to find someone to, to support it, to finance it. And that took some doing. We went to a couple of places and eventually CNN Films came on board serendipitously. All three of the executives at CNN Films are women. Amy Antelis and Courtney Sexton uh, were our executive producers. And we were very happy to have them to support this project and make it possible to do a documentary on this scale. So what was it like for you as a woman working and producing and directing a documentary about a woman like Justice Ginsburg. Yeah, I mean, really, it was a thrill to do this uh, film about Justice Ginsburg. She is one of the most important women of our time, and she is just a singular and inspiring person. I think at first... uh, Julie and I were a little intimidated by her. She's uh, maybe uh, very tiny, but she's imposing. Uh, but after we spent time following her around the country and also talking to people who played such an important role in her life, uh, we began to to see the the woman behind the Supreme Court justice and really uh, to admire so much about her and to enjoy her very sly sense of humor, which isn't evident at the beginning, but uh, it, it, I think it comes out in the film. So overall, uh, it was it was an honor. One of the qualities that really blew me away about Justice Ginsburg in the film was her superhuman work ethic, even yeah. in her 80s. Yeah, yeah, she's... I mean, she's amazing. You'll see it in the film, how people talk about how hard she works. I mean, we had a couple of examples of this. We were filming her at the uh, Santa Fe Opera Festival, where she goes every summer with her family. And she was going to go to four operas every single night. And the first night, you know, that opera lasted till about quarter to 12. I mean, I was exhausted by then. You know, two intermissions, they just go on and on. She was completely there for the opera. And then the second night, it was also a long opera. And the third night, it was a a shorter opera she was going to. And I said to the marshal, it was, you know, it was a modern opera. It was going to end at 930. I said to the U.S. marshal who travels with her, oh, an early night for you. He said, oh, no, Justice Ginsburg heard that it was uh, over at 930. And she decided that we would uh, go out for dinner afterwards. So (laughs) she is a night owl and she really pours it on. She's known at the court for being one of the first to get her uh, opinions or her dissents out there. She's She is very hardworking. I mean, when you say night owl, and you said that the opera ended, one opera ended before midnight, folks, we are talking about a woman who routinely works 
until like three or four in the morning. Apparently, that's when she gets her good work done. She will stay up and, uh, you know, complete that opinion or that dissent. You know, that's just the way she's always been. Her kids talk about it, waking up sometimes in the middle of the night, seeing mom at the dining room table with all her papers spread out, cup of coffee. And I guess apparently she used to eat prunes. And (laughs) that was her routine. What other qualities, Betsy, do you think might interest Java junkies that Justice Ginsburg has that we can learn from that have actually been some of the secrets of her success? You know, I I think Justice Ginsburg would say that uh, the primary secret to her success was marrying the right man. She fell in love with Marty Ginsburg when they were undergraduates at Cornell University in the 1950s. And he turned out to be just one extraordinary husband, even though Uh, You know, they both went to law school at the same time. He got cancer when he was in law school. So she was nursing him, organizing his work routine, taking care of their young child, who was a toddler at the time, and also uh, making law review herself. So she's a, a prodigious, a prodigious worker. But Marty supported her throughout her career. He had a very successful career as a tax attorney. But when Ruth Bader Ginsburg started bringing some very important cases as a litigator before the Supreme Court to challenge the kind of discrimination that everybody just took for granted in the 1970s, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, you know, these laws are not fair. She started a project to to challenge them. Marty Ginsburg supported her and he began to take over more of the uh, responsibilities at home. And, and he, ultimately, he became the, the chief uh, cook because he was a fantastic chef. So throughout her career, he was there up to the point where there was a Supreme Court opening that uh, uh, President Clinton was had his first opportunity to nominate someone to the Supreme Court. And Marty Ginsburg, who was very well connected in Washington, made sure that his wife's name was on the list and that she got a shot to interview for that job. Mm. So it's quite a it's quite a romance when you hear Ruth Bader Ginsburg talk about Marty, who who died in 2010, sadly. But, you know, her face just lights up. She clearly loved him so much. We were also very lucky to get access to some wonderful home movies of the two of them when they were a very young and very attractive young couple, which I think kind of brings that love story to life. Yes, it really did. Well, so much of the film. There's so much texture to it. And as Java Junkies will see, there were some really creative production techniques that you use that I won't go into here, but that helped bring some of Justice Ginsburg's time in the courtroom to life in a visual way that would have worked in radio, but without the amazing sort of creativity that you brought to the film, I don't think it would have worked if you had just played the tapes, but amazing production there. I wanted to ask you, Betsy, about how you convinced Justice Ginsburg to do this, because whether you're a documentarian or a journalist, and we're going to get into your life as a journalist in a moment, getting people to agree to do the interview is often the hardest part. So how did you do this? It sounds like you were 
kind of running with scissors there. You were building the documentaries. You went along hoping that Justice Ginsburg would actually sit down with you, but you didn't have that locked in. Well, yeah, here's how it went. We wrote an email in January of 2015 suggesting the idea of a documentary about her life. She emailed back very quickly saying that basically not yet. This was when she was 82 years old. And we're sort of thinking, not yet? Well, when? <laughs> uh, but but then we, we kind of reread the email and realized that she didn't actually say no. So a few months later, we wrote to her again. This time, we included a list of people who we'd like to interview, former clients, colleagues, friends. And we proposed the idea of starting to work on a documentary about her life. But we said, look, we don't have to talk to you right away, but here are some people we would like to interview. And again, she wrote back quite promptly and said her first paragraph kind of gave us a gulp because she said, uh, I would not be prepared to talk to you for at least two years. Then in the second paragraph, she said, however, if you are going to be speaking to people, you might want to consider. And then she listed three other people who weren't on our list. So that was the moment where we thought, okay, she's opened the door. We should go through it. We should start on this. And we were kind of betting on ourselves that that we would gain her trust and that she would give us that interview in two years' time and that we would get the kind of access that we knew we would need to tell a personal documentary. Her at home, her in her office, uh, with her, you know, with her family, we have seen with her granddaughter, and also working out in the gym. I mean, these things were in our head at that time, but we certainly didn't ask her about them yet. We just thought, okay, let's just start working on this and we'll we'll kind of move toward that. So I guess the the bottom line answer to this is you have to be patient and you have to be strategic. And persistent. And <laughs> yes. Betsy, I'd like to flash back to when you were a young Java junkie yourself at Brown University. What was your major? And did you know that you were going to be a journalist when you graduated? I didn't really know what I was going to do. My major was English with a kind of minor in film studies. And uh, I thought, well, maybe I'll work on movies. You know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, somehow work in the movie business. But I'd also worked on my on the Brown Daily Herald. When I got out of college, I didn't know what to do. So I went to graduate school. I went to Syracuse for a master's in uh, television and radio. And there I really found my my love of journalism. I started working for a radio station and in Syracuse to, to make ends meet while I was going to graduate school. And one thing just led to another. I got a, a summer relief job for ABC News in New York. It was supposed to last for a couple of months. And that just kind of evolved into a full-time job. At a certain point, I said, you know, I really want to be a producer. I think that what these producers do is so interesting. And so I set my sights on that and eventually did get to be a producer for the wonderful program Nightline uh, when your dad was was the anchor. And that was a, just a tremendous opportunity and experience because uh, I, I got to travel the world covering some of the uh, really most important stories of the 1980s and 
and 90s. So when you switched from being a radio reporter to being a producer, yeah, why did you decide you wanted to be behind the scenes rather than, for lack of a better description, the leading lady in, yeah. in the business? You know, if I look back on it, I think that I had a, a little bit of performance anxiety uh, about being the, the face right there. And I think it also felt more difficult for women on camera that constantly having to worry about how you look and your makeup and your hair. And I was put off by that, frankly. And I loved being in an edit room. I love the process of putting together a story. It's, it's like a puzzle when you're editing a story. You've got all these different pieces and you have to figure out how to put them together. There's there's more than one solution, but there are better solutions than others. And I just like the challenge of that. So I thought that producing would uh, be better for me. What are the skills needed to be a top-notch producer? Yeah, I think to be a top-notch producer, you need to be a great collaborator. You need to get people to work with you and to want to work with you. You need to have to be able to multitask, to be thinking about all kinds of different things at one time, but also keep your goal in mind. You have to be a good storyteller, I think, to be a good producer, or at least a producer and of, of documentaries and of news stories. And that means being a good writer uh, and, and just having a strong sense of story and writing. Hmm. So you said when you were at Brown, you majored in English with a minor in film. Yeah. What do you recommend Java junkies who know, or at least think they know, they want to be journalists? What do you recommend they study? Do you think they need to major in journalism? Yeah, I don't recommend that undergraduates major in journalism. I think it's great to work on the paper, but I recommend history, political science, economics, I mean, I took history. I wish I'd taken more. I now read, you know, more nonfiction than I read fiction. I love to read history. I think that's really an important grounding. You need to learn about how our world works uh, in order to be a good journalist, I think. And you also take some English classes, learn how to be a good writer. That's also important. Um, I'm sure now computer skills also. Uh, a lot of the um, students I teach at Columbia Journalism School, which you know is a graduate program, they are digital natives, and some of them have already learned how to uh, shoot and edit. These are also becoming more and more important skills for people who want to to go into. Uh, broadcast journalism or online journalism. I mean, when I was a producer, you weren't allowed to touch the camera or the uh, edit equipment because uh, it was against union rules. And now a lot of reporters are operating as uh, one man and one women bands. Yeah, absolutely. So you have alluded to some of the extracurriculars that you were involved in when you were at Brown. Could you maybe talk about them a little bit more as they relate to your ability to get a job after you graduated from Brown? What do you recommend in terms of extracurriculars 
that Java junkies engage in while they're in school that would better position them to land a job after they graduate? Yeah, I think it's important to jump into things that you have a passion for. I loved working on the paper. It was that was a great experience for me. And I also just loved going to movies. You know, in those days, we didn't have Netflix and, you know, we didn't have online movies. So we would be renting them and showing them almost every night at Brown. And sometimes I'd go to four or five or six movies in a week. I mean, it was really, it was both an escape, but I was also studying the movies and it was just a passion for me. I just realized I loved storytelling. There's so many ways to, to get involved with your community and to stoke your your own interests when you're in school. I think that's that's what should be driving you in a way more than thinking, oh, this is going to look great on my resume. Um, it's more, what am I going to love to do? Yeah. So important. Yeah. Betsy, one of the questions that I try to ask everyone that I interview on Time for Coffee is to share a moment, a time in their professional life when I don't want to be overly dramatic about it, but if there was a bottom, if it was a a particularly challenging time, whether you had a terrible boss or supervisor or you got fired, I was let go, for example, from CNN when I was 43 years old, after I'd been there for 14 years, it pretty much sucked. Um, it, you know, we've all had these moments. And I was wondering if you would share a personal story that could give Java junkies an appreciation for the fact that you will have ups and downs and you will get through it. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I've had a couple of doozies. Um, you know, I'm not a 20-something woman, so I have been around and, and certainly uh, had some low points. I also uh, lost a job at CBS News, an executive job in uh, 2005 when I got caught up in a political quagmire involving a, a story that uh, we should not have aired. And I kind of wound up being the uh, one, the fall guy for that. That was an extremely difficult time for me. You know, I want to talk about another time, though, because it, it might resonate with people. It was um, in 1981, I think it was, the Equal Rights Amendment was uh, being considered around the country in various states. And, you know, you needed a certain number of states to ratify it. And it all came down to Illinois. And at that time, I was just a writer at uh, in the Chicago Bureau at ABC. I really wanted to be a producer. I wanted to get out in the field. And I'd gone to my uh, boss and said, hey, this Equal Rights Amendment thing is really heating up and there's going to be a vote in in the uh, in Springfield and the legislature in the coming weeks. And I pitched the story and they said, OK, you can do it. So it was sort of my first big story. And I prepared a backgrounder and it wound up being for Nightline. I didn't work for Nightline at the time. So I did a background report and down we went to uh, Illinois, which uh, to the state legislature, it was a crazy day of women were lobbying 
for the Equal Rights Amendment and against the Equal Rights Amendment. And the women lobbying against the Equal Rights Amendment, the stop ERA women were going around the legislature, giving the men home-baked cakes and bread and cookies and saying that women belonged at home. And the pro-Equal Rights Amendment, where women were chanting and organizing, it was crazy. It came down to the vote at about six o'clock, and all of a sudden, they pulled the vote. And um, my correspondent and I were set up on the balcony with an edit uh, room to to feed into the evening news, and we didn't exactly know what had happened. So we called up the evening news and said that the vote had been pulled, but they were saying they were going to reintroduce it. So then uh, the CBS Evening Nude leads their 6.30 show with the report that the Equal Rights Amendment has died in Illinois. It's been pulled and it's never going to be reintroduced. And so we had kind of missed the story. My boss called me up about 20 minutes later screaming like I've never been screamed at before and just telling me, he said to me, you and your correspondent are the reason why there shouldn't be an equal rights amendment. Oh he my said. God. Really? I thought I, I, yeah, it was so devastating. Uh, I was just mortified and I just felt like this was, you know, this had been my chance and I had just blown it. It was horrible. So then about 10 minutes later, I get a phone call from the, executive producer of Nightline, you know, Nightline's on at 1130, he said, okay, we're doing our whole show about the Equal Rights Amendment. Get yourself moving, That get that background piece, finish it up. Can you please get Phyllis Schlafly, who was the, in charge of the uh, anti-ERA, the, the victor in this case, get her to be on Nightline, get Eleanor Smeal, who was the head of the National Organization for Women, get her. We're going to do a live broadcast out of the, uh, the, the legislature. So I'm running around. I mean, my stomach is still in knots from what had happened before, but I really couldn't think about it. So for the next four hours, I ran around finishing the piece that I was working on, getting these two women booked and finding locations for them. And, and then we did the program, Ted Koppel leading the show with the defeat of the Equal Rights Amendment with his two guests and our backgrounder piece. And was all over it at midnight, and I get a phone call from the executive producer of Nightline telling me I'm the most wonderful producer he's ever worked with, that I am just, like, absolutely fantastic. This is the greatest. I mean, in, in the space of five hours, I went from the lowliest of the low to the highest of the high. I'll never really forget that night. Oh, my God. What? <laughs> A story, Betsy. So yeah. what happened after that? Well, the next day, you know, the, the executive producer of the uh, Nightly News was still furious at me, but he wanted us to do a, a follow-up. So we did a follow-up story for the for the Nightly News and, and kind of, you know, redeemed ourselves a little bit with them. Meanwhile, the executive producer of Nightline started calling me up to do stories I was based in Chicago at the time. And, you know, I think within nine months, he'd offered me a full-time job and then moved me to New York. So it all worked out really well. So you kept your chin up. You kept yep. your cool. Yeah. You compartmentalized those feelings of yeah. despair. 
exactly right. Right? And you, yep. and you just gave it everything you had at that moment. Yeah. I, I, I so remember going back to my crummy little motel in Springfield when it was all over. I think, you know, all the rooms in Springfield had been booked by these women who were coming to lobby. So we were staying in the worst place, What you know, half an hour out of town. And I remember just falling into my bed that night and just saying, wow, <laughs> good for you. You know, you just held it together because I really was on the verge of just losing it and and unable to perform. And then I just thought, no, you got to do it. You just have to suck it up and do this. Oh, I'm so glad that you gave yourself that attaboy because I would not have done that at that age to say like, damn, you go with your bad self, right? I was, I was pretty, I was proud of myself. I was, even though I still had to deal with the uh, fallout of the, the other failure. I just, I, I was proud. So yeah, there's, there's a story for you. Betsy, final time for coffee question here. If you could go back to college, whether to Brown or wherever, and do the experience all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have today, what advice would you give yourself? Wow. Um, don't be so hard on yourself. Try to find things that are outside of yourself that, that you can get involved in. Look for the brilliant professors. Take the courses that are being offered by the professors who have the reputation for for being smart and also engaging and caring about their students. You know, just try to just not be so worked up in your own problems and issues, but take advantage of this opportunity because, you know, it only happens once and it can be a wonderful time if you don't let yourself get in the way of it. (laughs) That is so true. (laughs) Betsy West, director of the incredible, and I know that's not in the title, but the amazing documentary RBG that I hope all Java junkies will make time to watch because it will, it, it will stay with you. Congratulations, Betsy. And thank you so much for making time for coffee with me and the time for coffee community today. Well, thank you, Andrea. Really a pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations on this podcast. It just seemed so wonderful and I'm going to be listening. So thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.